Amen. Well, good morning, Christian Fellowship Church. Glad to see you all here today. Um, we've got a packed agenda for the sermon today. Uh, we're moving through our doctrinal statement, and I want to uh, pause and unpack uh, the issue of baptism a little bit. That is, um, uh, there's a lot to say about it. So I'd uh, ask you to pray with me uh, that I would communicate clearly that we would walk away with full hearts, full minds, um, and that we would be focused on what the Lord has for us uh, this morning. So please pray with me. Father, we thank you that in the next few moments we have the privilege of um, being together as we uh, look into your word and uh, what it teaches us about something as important as baptism. And so we ask that you would uh, give us grace clarity of mind, um, focus, and so we ask that, um, that you give us your grace in that regard so that we can access your truth um, and leave here uh, as disciples that have been matured by your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, Paul writes to the Ephesians and tells them that uh, all Christians from all time and all races and all ethnicities are joined together by serving one Lord. They have one faith, one baptism. It's a sign of unity in the church, of oneness. But ironically, all over the world and throughout the history of the church, baptism, water baptism, has been a focal point of difference and division. So what I'd like to do this morning is unpack some of the issues that surround baptism, some of the confusing things about it. Does it convey grace? Are you less of a Christian if you don't have it, if you're not baptized? Uh, does it help you get to heaven? Is it enough to get you to heaven? If you don't ha get it, do you not go to heaven? Um, do you pour it? Do you sprinkle it? Do you dunk them? Um, what, what is appropriate baptism? And then, of course, the greatest debate of whether churches should baptize infants. If you're a parent and you didn't baptize your infant, did you miss out on something? Are you familiar enough with the scriptures that they would point to and say that you should baptize your, or do you just not baptize your infant because it's your tradition? We always say, oh, they baptize their infants because it's their tradition. What if they're right and it's just your tradition to not baptize your infant? So these are crucial issues that we should look at. And of course, what we go to is not the traditions of the church fathers. What we go to first is not creeds and confessions. What we go to first is the word of God. What is clear there? And let's follow that. So I'd like to do in the next few minutes, we're going to kind of go wrap the note taker. Lick that pen tip or get your thumbs ready if you're a typer on your tablet or whatever it is. Um, uh, there will be a lot here. Some of the verses will be up on the screen. Some I'll just mention. And then a couple we'll turn to, or one at least. But uh, we're going to move right along. Okay, what we're going to do, pack a, one uniting aspect of baptism. If, you're, if it's an evangelical church, a gospel preaching church, all of the uh, solid high view of scripture churches must agree on this about baptism. 
Then I want to talk a little bit about some of the differences that don't divide us in terms of who's saved and who's not, but do divide churches in terms of membership. So what I'd like to do is first go to uh, the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, Paul mentions baptism. We're going to read, uh, let's just read 8 through 15 so we get a sense of the whole paragraph, okay? So we're not just teaching line. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who was the head of all rule and authority in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of god who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's a lot there, right? So what we're going to do today is focus on why he inserts this element element of baptism there. He's talking to Christians and trying to encourage them. Don't get deceived by all the different philosophies and traditions that man is going to try to hoist upon onto the church and hoist upon you to steer you away from what Christ clearly teaches. Don't fall into those traps because you've been changed. You don't have to fall into those traps. You've been the dead because Christ was raised from the dead. That change, you bring baptism, meaning if you're a Christian, you've experienced baptism. Why is he so clear when he writes to the Colossians, I know you've been baptized. That's why you know that you can make it. Because physical baptism is a spiritual baptism. And spiritual baptism is your entrance into Christianity. You're identified with Christ's death. You rise again with resurrection so that all the sin that made you deserve death, nailed to the cross. And there's triumph over all those enemies, all those accusers, all those that would lead you astray. There's triumph there because of your spiritual baptism, which is represented by physical baptism. So that's why he brings baptism in here, because he knows if he's addressing a group of Christians, he knows they've been baptized, because this is commanded. You remember Matthew 28, Jesus said, go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them. You baptize a person and then you teach them to become a disciple. You don't teach them and then one day maybe they get around to baptism. You baptize them. It's a mandate. Jesus led by example. John the Baptist is like, whoa, you should be baptizing me. No, I'm starting this whole thing. So you're going to baptize me. 
So this is something that is uh, essential. It's not an option. Um, it's not something that, you know, you want to linger on for a long time. You come to faith, you know, maybe in 20 years, I'll think about baptism. You know, some people have weird hang-ups. I don't want to get up there and sure, and you're wet in front of everybody. Oh, my hair, you know, whatever it is. It's a mandate. It's a mandate. And so, Paul can clearly write that this is a mandate. Christ taught, repent and be baptized. And when you see his apostles preaching, repent and be baptized. First sermon in the book of Acts, they come out of that that upper room and they're speaking in tongues, they're filled with the Spirit, and uh, which that's not the same thing, by the way, but that's another sermon. Uh, they they asked them, they asked him after his after his message, and he cut them to the heart, and he said, they said, what what can we do? What can we do? Repent and be baptized, every single one of you, right now. Not repent, and then you know, let's uh, consider baptism. But repent and be baptized. And so it's a command, it's a mandate. We see it all through. It's not something any Christian wants to ignore. But baptism doesn't save you. The water, the tank, you know, doesn't save you. It's a symbol of what saved you. It's an outward manifestation, profession of the faith that saved you. Can someone be baptized but they don't have faith? Yeah, that's true. But if you do have faith, then one of the ordinances of the church, one of the mandated actions that, that outwardly show God's grace in your life, water, baptism. But it does not save you. The official position of the Roman Catholic Church is that literal water, actual physical baptism, conveys forgiving grace. That is not biblical. That is not biblical, and we know that because of Ephesians 2.8. You are not saved by works. You are saved by grace through faith alone. There's nothing you did that earns it. There's nothing you can do that gets you forgiveness. Forgiveness is through faith alone. And that's it. And then we have examples of that, right? Like the thief that died on the cross next to Jesus Christ. Was he baptized? No, but Jesus told him, today you'll be with me in paradise. How can you give him that guarantee? Without baptism. Because baptism doesn't save you. However, if it was a different situation and the thief, you know, somebody came out with some proof. Wait a minute, he didn't do it. And he came down. I'm totally making this up. Some of you are like, that's so sacrilegious. Just hang with me for a second. If he didn't die, he would have been baptized. He would have followed through because it is a command. We have to move away from, I only want to do the things that secure my salvation. And then everything else, who cares? That's not how the Christianity Right? Does not save you? No. All right, let's all just cuss like sailors then. Right? Does perfect attendance at church save me? No. Well, then let me forget church. See, it's, it's not logical in any of our doctrinal st- statements. So we don't want to apply it there. Baptism is important. It doesn't save you. Then 1 Peter 3.21, Peter makes it clear. Baptism is not about a removal of dirt from your body. It's about an appeal to God for a good conscience. Forgiveness. That's what it's about. That's a spiritual reality. Not a physical one. But the physical one matters. If I take this and look at Tina dead in the face and I flush it down the toilet, Is that meaningful? It's just a ring. The ring doesn't mean I'm married. Can I be married without a ring? Yeah. Can I wear a ring and not be married? Yes. So the physical symbol 
doesn't secure the reality, and it's not meaningful. Baptism means a lot to save you. It meant a lot to Jesus. It meant a lot to the early disciples when they preached. The early disciples, when they first came and part of the Christian church, they came to faith. They were baptized. So, that is what a church must agree on. If a church disagrees with that, that is a dividing line. That is heresy. Either that you don't need baptism or that you need it to be saved. It's just so clear in Scripture that that's wrong. There are some other differences, though, that we want to walk through. Okay? So what I want to do is talk a little bit about mold. Pour, sprinkle, dunk. Okay. We're not going to linger long on that one because I don't think it's as important as the other one. Two parents have their first child and they need to make a decision. Do we baptize this baby or do we not? Do we wait till they come to faith or do we baptize them now? Are we missing out on something? Is the child missing out on something if we don't baptize them? Shouldn't we cover something? What if the baby dies? There's a lot of questions that go into it. So here mode baptism and although this is not a, an issue of heresy were sprinkled or you were they poured some water on you i'm not saying you must be rebaptized or there's something definitely wrong with you but scripturally speaking the way to go is full immersion in water i'm going to give you a couple reasons why the first reason is the Greek word for baptize. Are you ready? You would never guess this is the Greek word for baptize. Baptizo. Isn't that crazy? We get the word baptism from the Greek word for baptize. Baptizo. What does baptizo mean? If you read ancient documents and you're reading the Greek, baptizo every single time means dunk, immerse, going down into water. Every time. Now, we want to take that word immerse and use a Greek word for it, baptize, and then forget that baptize means immerse, and then use it for something else like sprinkle or dunk or flick or whatever we do with the water, that's, that's a, a departure from just what the word means. It, it means immerse. Baptize means to go down fully into water. So you have what the plain word means. And then you have right? Like John 3 John the Baptist goes to a specific spot to start baptizing people. Why? In John 3.23, it tells us why John the Baptist picked that spot to baptize people. Right? It, all you would need is a cup if you're just going to flick it at people's foreheads. Right? Or just dab it in the shape of a cross on somebody's forehead. All you would need is a, a gallon to baptize a few hundred. Right? He went to a place where the waterfall was plentiful. Why do you need plentiful water? Because there's a lot of people, and he needs to dunk them. He needs to immerse them in the water. You remember Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip comes alongside the chariot. And he's like, do you understand what you're reading? He was reading Isaiah. He's like, how can I understand if no one explains it to me? Philip hops into the chariot, explains Isaiah to him, how it points to Christ. He must have gotten to baptism. Another sign for how important baptism is. And the Ethiopian eunuch goes, man, I should be baptized now. He looks up and see, and he says, there's water. There's some water. I don't think he meant, there's a guy with a Dixie cup of water. I, I, I don't think he meant, look, there's a little, there, it's, it's drizzling. You stick in it, it drizzle. I think they came upon a lake, a stream, a river. Okay, a little bit of imagination, maybe. 
We can see there's water, but here's proof. They pull over, and it says, the text says, they went, quote, down into the water. It's not a puddle. The Ethiopian eunuch knew he needed to be immersed in water. So, the appropriate mode of baptism is immersion. Um, Immersion also makes the most sense of what it symbolizes. Twice Paul talks about our being buried with Christ and raised with Christ. This is Romans 6, Colossians 2. And both times he talks about our being buried with Christ and raised with Christ, he slips in baptism as the illustration of being buried with Christ and raised with Christ. So a sprinkle or a little pouring or a little cup or whatever doesn't symbolize the burial and the rising again. Water symbolizes judgment throughout the Bible. And so there's this judgment of death and then coming out on the other side of that judgment alive. That's beautiful imagery. And imagery is important, isn't it? When we have communion, we don't do Twinkie and Coke. Right? Here's break this Twinkie. It's the body of Christ. Why don't we do that? It's just a symbol. As long as it's edible, I guess it's the debatable Twinkies, right? Right? As long as it's edible, you'll be fine. No, there's something about bread. There's something about the vine. And I think there's something about going down into the water. You disappear for a second. And a new person comes up. That's the symbol of full immersion. Now, there's no clear text that says that you have to baptize with immersion because that's what it symbolizes. But when Paul both times talks about buried and raised and both times uses baptism as the illustration, I don't think we have very far to go. And since we have the option, since we have, somebody told me once, well, they poured water on my head because, you know, I lived in a, in a place where they didn't have a whole lot of water. Okay, look, again, I don't think this is a matter of, you know, getting locked out of heaven or anything like that. But it's hard to imagine a place where you can't go down into water and come back up again. Since we have the option, let's use what the Bible seems to point to most clearly instead of making up our own modes. Okay. Again, this is not a matter of exclusion from the church. This isn't a matter of barring somebody from membership. But let's do it the way that the Bible lays it out. Bigger debate. Bigger point of difference is infant baptism. Should churches baptize infants? There are two positions. Pado-Baptists are those that believe that they should baptize the infants of believing parents. They don't just go around baptizing all infants. Pado-Baptists. Okay, Pado, the Greek word for child. The Pado-Baptists believe that if uh, at least one of the parents is a believer, that parent should baptize the child, the church should baptize that infant um, and that infant is now in, in the a covenant of faith with the family. Credo-Baptists, Credo-Baptists are those who believe that you should come to a point of belief. You know, like when you have a creed, yes, I believe that. A creed is a confession of what I believe. I should get to the point personally of being able to believe before I'm baptized, so that's Credo-Baptism. Layman's terms, infant baptism, believer's baptism. Infant baptism, believer's baptism. We don't say adult baptism, because what if the child is 10? And they clearly demonstrate a knowledge, an an understanding of the gospel. What if someone's an adult, but they don't believe? They don't baptize them because they're adults. So it's a believer's baptism. 
We're not waiting until someone hits a particular age. We're waiting for someone to get to that point where they can consciously place faith in Christ. But pedo-baptists don't, well, they believe that. Pedo-baptists don't only baptize infants, but they also baptize infants, right? Why do they do that? Well, there's reasons why they do that. And I want to make really clear, I have dear friends in ministry, in churches. They're, they're pastors that I respect. I read their stuff. I listen to their sermons. I highly respect them. I just respectfully disagree. And it is a respectful disagreement. Sometimes people say, uh, with all due respect, and then the next thing out of their mouth is totally disrespectful. I'm, I honestly mean, with total respect. I respect them, but I do disagree. But I want to make it clear what they say. And this can take forever. I'm going to do it really short, small. I'm sure that if any person who held to pedo baptism uh, heard this, they'd go, oh, he didn't bring up these points. In my opinion, these are the two most salient points, the most uh, convincing uh, points that they would hold to. And the first one is a, is a, is a household principle. In the Old Testament, Many times you would see that the believer, say a, a father in the household, would believe and, and God would promise that the, that the promises of the covenant will be to him and his household. So all those born in the house would be folded in. All those that are in the house, the wives, the children, the servants, would be folded into this covenant because of the faith of the leader of the household. And so they say that extends into the New Testament since there's no essential difference between the basis of salvation in the Old and the New Covenant was by faith in the Old Testament. It's by faith in the New Testament. If in the Old Testament promises could splash over to other people in a household, well then in the New Testament promises could splash over to other people in that household. And so we baptize infants because they're folded into this household promise. In Acts, there are several times where salvation is promised to an individual and their household. Like the jailer, He's like, whoa, he couldn't believe that, you know, Paul and Silas are what, the miracle that's getting them out of jail and the earthquake and all that. He's scared out of his wits. And he's like, what do you say? He said, believe in Jesus Christ, you know, repent, give him the gospel, and you and your whole household will be saved. So they say, see, him and his whole household. It continued from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Lydia, when Lydia comes to Christ, she gives her life to Christ, she becomes saved, and it said, comma, and her whole household comma, and then the sentence continues. And so they say, see, in the Old Testament, you have whole households coming to, Christ, coming to the Lord, coming to faith. In the New Testament, you have whole households, covenant promise, because of the faith of one person. Their second main argument, and we can stay in Colossians 2 for this one. Did you catch that Paul sneaks in circumcision here? Okay, if you look at verse 11, in him also, and then right there, some of the Colossians are like, I wasn't circumcised, I'm not even Jewish. I lived in Colossae all my whole life. He goes, no, not the kind made by hands. And they're like, Phew. that's all I'll say about that. Not the kind made by hands, but the circumcision of Christ, right? In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Well, which is it? Circumcision or baptism? Pato Baptist would say, it was circumcision in the Old Testament, it's baptism in the New Testament. So how did that household come to faith? The leader of that household came to faith, that leader of the household would be circumcised, and 
the male infants would be circumcised, and circumcision was a symbol. It didn't save them, but it was a symbol of faith and being in the covenant in the Old Testament. So Peter Baptist would say, the symbol for covenant faith in the Old Testament was circumcision. The symbol for covenant faith in the New Testament is baptism. How did they circumcise in the Old Testament? When the child was an infant. So, how do we baptize in the New Testament? If it's a household of faith and the child is an infant, you baptize them. They don't say it necessarily has to be eight days into the child's life. But it's a parallel to circumcision. And because of that parallel, they see continuity between the Old and the New Testaments to the point where circumcision is replaced by baptism. And since circumcision was done to infants, baptism can be done, should be done to infants as well. Okay? Those are their two main arguments. And, uh, and man, they're pulling this completely out of a hat. Well, they have texts like this that put baptism and circumcision next to each other and make it sound like these things are parallel. There are other passages that they would point to as well. Okay. I don't believe that. And I want to explain why. I want it to be fair and say that's their explanation. I think it's important for all of you if you're going to engage in these kind of conversations, to understand the other side. I like understanding the other side better than they do sometimes. It helps clarify things for them. And it definitely helps clarify things for me. But we too often argue from what I grew up with and everyone else is an idiot. And we don't understand where they're coming from. Coming from Scripture. Maybe not all of them. But they should. They should be coming from Scripture. And when they do, those are the things they point to. But we don't believe, we believe a person comes to a point in life when they can consciously place their faith in Christ and we baptize them then, not before. So you say, well, but infant baptism, there's no faith there. They, well, they don't care about faith? No. They say the infant grows to be a child. That child eventually one day, at some point, maybe in middle childhood, teenage years, maybe they're an adult, at some point when they come to personal faith in Christ, then that faith retroactively makes that infant baptism a symbol of faith. So they still believe in faith. It's not that faith of the child doesn't matter. It's just that baptism now, faith applies later. We say, no, we'll wait till they show a demonstration of faith, and we baptize them at that point. Well, why do we do that? Because we don't want to mess with infants? No, that's not why. Unpack a couple of things. They talk about the household argument, right? Here's five points I want to say about that real quick, if you're writing them down or whatever, or just listen, okay? Five points about why that household argument doesn't work. The first one is that every time uh, we hear about the, 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 the gospel being preached, it's always repent and believe, repent and believe. This is what Jesus went around preaching, repent and believe. So there's an order of repentance and belief preceding baptism, right? And every time we see a household getting saved in the book of Acts, it never says that the household had people that didn't believe. See, what, what they would say is, you, you need to show a household and, that says all of the household were believers. I say, no. Throughout the entire New Testament and Old Testament, to be with God, you needed faith. And in the New Testament, that's emphasized. Repent and believe. You need to place your faith in Jesus Christ and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. That's how you're saved. So faith is always a prerequisite. 
And when it talks about households, I assume that the household came to faith. It doesn't say in any of those texts, Lydia came to Christ of her faith, and even though everyone else was kicking and screaming, rejected the gospel, they hated it, they were saved too. That would be against the gospel. You cannot be saved unless you call upon the name of the Lord. So when I read a text like that, the whole household came to faith, what I think is, wow, not only was Lydia saved, her whole household got it too. They got it too. They understood the gospel and they gave their lives to Christ. So faith isn't mentioned in those passages because we already know faith is necessary to come to Christ, right? I hope you know that. I hope you know that if you're evangelizing someone in Panera, then they're like, what do I do to be saved? That you don't say, come to church, we got a tank, I'll dunk you. No, you say you need faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Explain the gospel to them. If they go, man, I believe that. Pray with them. You just want a brother or a sister, right? So faith is always required. If the text says a household came and they were saved, we should automatically assume the household had faith, not automatically assume, oh, some of them must have not had faith. Ooh, we have a a situation here. There's no situation. They came to faith. Two, none of those household statements in Acts, oh, the whole household came to Christ, came to be saved, none of them mention the ages of anyone in the house. Pedo-Baptists are assuming some of them were infants. Imagine we were the church, some of the church in the book of Acts, right? We were some of the church in the book of Acts. And, uh, and, 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 and I preached the gospel, and I said, man, one man came to Christ, and his whole family got saved, too. This whole family came. What if I was talking about Bill and Jen Soloway? Any infants there? No, right? So you can imagine households that have children, but don't have infants. The, 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 the book of Acts isn't like everybody that came, all of their households were saved. No, it just shows you the, the awesome exceptions. Lydia came, and by the way, her whole house came too. They're not trying to say every time someone comes to Christ, their whole house also comes to Christ. But the gospel doesn't say that. Acts doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't teach that, right? So it doesn't mention the ages um, of any of them. They could have been teenagers. They could have been all adults, whatever. Acts chapter 16, though, has a really interesting situation where the jailer comes and the jailer asks, what do I need to do? What, what, what do I need to do to be saved? I, I need what you guys have. Well, repent and believe. And you and your whole household will be saved. If you repent and believe, you'll be saved. If your whole household repents and believe, they'll be saved. Repentance is clearly there the prerequisite. He asked them, how do I do this? And he said, well, all you need to do is you be saved, and then it'll be your family too. He said, no, repent and believe, you and your whole household. You and your whole household have to do what? Repent and believe. How can a household repent if it's full of infants? Infants can't repent. Therefore, the jailer's household had no infants in it. There were people that could respond to the message. How do we know that? They leave the jail, they go home, and it says, Paul taught the whole house. Now, can I have, you know, four or five little infants up here? I'm like, hey, guys. We're going to do a catechism this morning, okay? Uh, Sally, uh, what is the purpose of man? What? What? You want your binky? It'd be crazy, right? You can't teach an infant. So when the text tells us in Acts chapter 16 that Paul goes to the house and teaches the entire house, and the entire house believed, it means that there were people in that household that were able to respond with faith, meaning there were no infants involved. Or he's excluding infants in that statement. It also says that at the end of that paragraph, 
the entire family, the entire household rejoiced that the jailer believed in Christ. How can an infant rejoice in the dad coming to Christ? It wouldn't. The infant would just want a cookie, right? And so we know that. I'm going to put one up here, Acts chapter 18. So we don't have to flip around too much, but Acts chapter 18. Here's another household verse that I think is uh, super clear. Uh, Acts chapter 18, I think we got the right verse here. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Let's go to the next one. I wonder if I got the the wrong verse here. Is there another one up there? All right, I must have given the wrong verse. Um, You guys can maybe find it. I'm pretty sure it's Acts 18. But it's another household passage. Crispus comes to faith and his whole household is saved. Okay? Here's what the text says. You can turn to it or you can just listen up real quick. Crispus believed together with his entire household. Crispus' whole household was saved, but it says Crispus believed together with his whole household. They believed together. Infants can't place faith in Christ. Infants can't believe, meaning Crispus' household didn't have infants in it. Crispus' household might have had teenagers, might have had middle-aged kids, might have had some college-aged kids. Maybe his in-laws were living with him. Who knows how old the servants were, but they were all able to consciously place faith in Christ, otherwise couldn't say that they all believed, right? Then it says in the next line, many in that area believed and were baptized. Same sentence, same paragraph. Many believed and were baptized. That's the pattern. We should stick to the pattern. The person comes to a place of belief, then you baptize the person who believed, right? The question I would like to ask a Pato Baptist, and I'm sure I will because I have so many friends that are in this tradition If the household principle were true, what if the household contained a 13-year-old who rejected the gospel? Is he saved? If you have a whole household and one one of the kids is 13 years old, understands the gospel, hates it, rejects it, I hate you, mom, I hate you, dad, cusses at them and says, I reject the gospel. Is he saved because of the faith of the parents? No. Do Pato Baptists baptize the 13-year-old? No. What would they say? Well, no, he doesn't have faith yet. So why are you baptizing the infant that doesn't have faith yet? If it doesn't apply to the 13-year-old, why does it apply to the 8-day-old? Wait till they come to a point of faith. And then let them experience the awesome outward profession of immersion into the water and then coming out, representing becoming a new person they talk a lot about the uh, circumcision uh, principle and I want to do away with that one kind of quickly I do see that there's a parallel if you look at Colossians chapter 2 where we just were I do see a parallel with circumcision Paul puts them next to each other and look did the physical circumcision save anybody no it was about a circumcision of the heart right placing faith in God Same thing with baptism, I get that. But there's a lot of disconnect. I can't come to a point where we just say, look, infants are circumcised, let's baptize all the babies. To me, that's that's such a leap with no scriptural dots connecting the two. For instance, one of the big differences between circumcision and the Old Testament, it was only for males. 
If you're a female in the Old Testament, you had no outward sign that you had faith or that you were in the covenant. Unless there was some outward sign that you were married to somebody that was. But the physical sign that Abraham's seed would produce the one, the Christ that's coming, was physical circumcision applied only, obviously, to males. That doesn't carry over. One of the reasons why, another point, that I think circumcision worked for babies in the Old Testament was because it was tied to ethnicity. You were Jewish. This marked your Jewishness. And your Jewishness meant that you are or are supposed to be in the covenant relationship with God. Right? You can't change your ethnicity. A child can't grow up and go, you know what, I'm not Jewish anymore. If they rejected God, they would forever look like somebody who was supposed to be God's people and they rejected God's covenant. But they're supposed to embrace it because the circumcised Jew, he's supposed to be in faith. There's nothing like that in the New Testament. The New Testament is any ethnicity, any race, any age, any gender, no matter what your background, no matter where you're from, no matter what situation you're born into, it doesn't matter. It's not something you can signify outwardly with a physical mark. It is not something that can be tied to any kind of ethnic connection. And so it doesn't fit to do it when the child is a baby. They had to do it for the baby in circumcision because it was tied to ethnicity. It was a nation. But that's not the case with Christians. Now we're Russian, we're German, we're Hispanic, we're you know, white, black, we're Asian. I mean, it's, we're all over. And everyone is included, men and women. Everyone gets this sign. And so there's just too much of a breakdown between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament to just say, look, babies, babies. Doesn't, doesn't work. I think another important point, though, guys, is that what's happening spiritually is the issue, right? What's going on spiritually is the issue. It's not about the water, okay, what temperature it is, how full is the tank or whatever. It's not, that's the physical stuff. But what it points to is a spiritual reality. Now, in the Old Testament, they would circumcise the child at birth because at birth, they were in the covenant. In the New Testament, you're not in the covenant until you're spiritually born. Remember when Jesus explained this to Nicodemus? You have to be born again. Oh, my goodness, do I have to crawl back into my mother's womb? And Jesus is like, wow, you're a teacher. You're not not about going back and being physically born. You're already physically born. You need to be spiritually born. So if circumcision, circumcision happens when someone is spiritually born, then why not do baptism, which is the new circumcision, they would say, at the time of their spiritual birth, not the time of their physical birth? He's spiritually being reborn again. So let's show the circumcision that happened in his heart. Baptize him. With infant baptism, we're doing a physical sign of a spiritual reality that may be, may not be, but isn't at that time. So for that reason, it doesn't make sense. There are no promises in the new covenant that children are folded into faith. You might be a believer. That doesn't mean your child gets to do whatever he or she wants to do. They need to come to faith. We know that. We pray for that. We labor in that. We've got CFC kids help, helping them understand doctrine, right? We, we, do, we do everything we can to raise children that are godly and that understand the gospel. And we long for that moment when they understand that gospel and come to a place of saving faith. Sprinkling them as an infant doesn't do anything toward that. But once they come to faith, 
What do you do with somebody that reads the Bible and goes, oh my goodness, repent and be baptized, believe and be baptized. Oh, I don't get to experience that because I was sprinkled. Now it's the awkward situation of now I got to get rebaptized. I think the way for a church to do is stick with the most clear biblical example of baptized believers. Boy, totally running out of time. I just want to leave you with two quick passages. I think these are up on the screen. I'm sorry about that, guy. I messed up over there. But here, here's two real quick. Write these down. Look at them later a little more. These are two that speak most clearly about what baptism is. And we're going to put those up here real quick. The first one's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, which corresponds to Noah and the ark. Noah, everyone was getting judged by water, but Noah came out of the water saved. Remember? Okay, he's saying that's like what baptism is. Baptism corresponds to that. Baptism saves you. What? I thought you said it didn't. He said, listen, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not physical baptism that saves you. It's the spiritual reality, which is what? An appeal to God for a good conscience. Physical baptism points to what's happening spiritually. What's happening spiritually is that person being baptized is appealing to God. God, clear my conscience, save me, forgive me. An infant can't do that. Don't baptize the infant. The other verse I want to show you is Galatians chapter 3. This is the last passage you're going to look at. It says, But now that faith has come, you are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. You are all sons of God. The persons that he's writing to are Christians. You are all sons of God through faith. How did they become Christians? They applied personal faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. A church that baptized infants cannot say that. If we baptize infants in this church, I could not say, all of you that have been baptized, I know. I know you're a believer. I would have to say, most of you that have been baptized, or some of you that have been baptized, we know are believers, but some of you were baptized as you were infants, and the jury is still out. What are you going to decide for yourself? But that's not what Paul says. As many as were baptized, those are the ones that put on Christ. If 150 were baptized in that church, then that church is saying these 150 are Christian. They're Christian because of physical water. They're Christian because they appeal to God with their consciences. An infant can't do that. We should baptize believers. So I'll just close by saying this. I, I don't think that these are debates that should separate fellowship with Christians. If you're friends with somebody that believes the other side of Maybe they believe in sprinkling or pouring or maybe they believe in baptizing infants. Listen, don't, don't break fellowship with them. Don't break fellowship with them. They still believe it's by faith. They still believe it's only by grace. If they break that, then that's a problem. But why do we do this? I want us to be able to engage in dialogue with other brothers and sisters in the church and outside of the church, other churches, responsibly, with love and turning to Scripture. I want parents in our church to have a good mind about why we do or don't do what we do or don't do concerning baptism. It's important for us to understand these scriptural principles. But we never need to forget, must never forget what it symbolizes being buried with Christ and being raised with him. Being triumphant over all accusation by the enemy, not because of what you're able to do or how you can spiritually perform, but only because you're with what Jesus Christ has already done, nailing all of that junk to the cross. Colossians.